Okay, here's a much needed disclaimer. My guest and I are passionate about what we talk about in this episode. We do our best to look at the discussed topics objectively, but we understand that we, like everyone else on this planet, have some innate biases and don't know the answers to everything. You can agree with what we say or take it with a grain of salt. You can completely disagree with one or both of our viewpoints or just disagree with certain parts. That's your decision, but please know we are not coming from a condescending place, but from a place of curiosity, insight, and interest as it relates to a subject we are both passionate about. second episode of the second season of the A Few of My Favorite Things podcast. I am so excited to have my next guest on for the show today. Uh, as you all probably know, I am a transfer student. I used to be at Sanford University in Birmingham, Alabama. Then I transferred to the University of Southern Mississippi in Hattiesburg, Mississippi. And this is a person I have continuously been in contact with since I was a freshman and now I am a sophomore at my current institution. I've absolutely loved talking with her and she's just been a joy to know and just communicate with and just talk to, especially in these turbulent times that we're in. And I'm so pleased to have on the show Maylin Dye. So Maylin, how are you doing today? I'm doing pretty good. How about you? I am doing well. How about you tell the audience a little bit about yourself? Okay, sure. Um, Well, first of all, thank you so much for having me on your podcast. Um, I love listening to podcasts, so this is really cool to be on like the other side of it. But as... (laughs) Garrett said, I am a sophomore at Stanford University. Um, I started off undeclared, and then I ended up thinking I was going to go in the pre-business, somewhere in the business field, and then kind of backtracked, and now I'm on the pre-med track here at Stanford, and I'm studying biology and minoring in economics. I'm actually from Nashville, Tennessee, and my family lives there, and I've lived there my whole life, so yeah, that's a little bit about me. It's a very interesting story. So uh, I guess just as a point of reference for our audience, this episode is recorded on February 6, 2021, but you're approaching the third week of classes. So how's the second semester of your sophomore year been going? It's been pretty good. So last semester, we had a lot of a lot of hybrid classes and we uh, Zoom one day and then we'd be in person the next day. And so it's kind of crazy how fast things have really changed. All of my classes are in person every single day. And so that has been a little bit of an, a transition for me at least because I kind of got used to the, the flexibility of how everything, how classes and homework and everything was structured. And so that has been a little bit challenging. But other than that, it's been good. I'm taking three science classes, one art class, and one economics class. So I got a full load, but so far it's been exciting and interesting. So, yeah. Very interesting. And since economics just happens to be the topic we're talking about today, uh, how is your economics class going? It is really good. I will preface, I want to preface everything that I say with the fact that I am not at all an expert. Like there's still so much and the more I have studied economics, there's just so much that I don't know. But economics class has been really good. I'm in intermediate economics and my professor told us, I think it was Wednesday, uh, he said that there's no general consensus of what intermediate economics is. And so with that, he was like, we are just going to go with whatever interests us. And he's like, I could stand up here and talk about what interests me until I'm blue in the face. But like, as we ask questions, he just kind of directs and guides us. And so all of our tests and quizzes are pretty much going to be on class discussions and things that our classmates have, have brought up. So like you said, I'm only three weeks in and we haven't gotten super deep into really anything because we're kind of reviewing, but I'm really excited for that that aspect because it it's a very broad topic and field of study. <laughs> of course, and would this happen to be just a, another economics class that you're taking this semester and you took one last semester, or is this your first economics class? This will be my third class in college. Very interesting. So I can tell that you're already used to the uh, the premise of economics so far. So A little bit, yeah. I got a good foundation, I think, from my freshman year of economics. 
It's very interesting. And uh, just as a point of reference for our audience, I, though I am not an economics major or minor, I am a uh, business administration minor. And I took a economics class last semester. And I must say, it was a very interesting class. And one of the reasons why it was so interesting was going into the class, I feel like most people have this, I guess, perception of what economics is supposed to be. It's supposed to be this thing that only focuses on money, but it's really more of just a way of thinking just about things in general. It's so much deeper than that. Absolutely. There's a lot of psychology that goes into it. And right now we're talking about GDP, which is gross domestic product. And it is such a useful measurement tool to see where countries are as far as development. But um, we're kind of delving into the shortcomings. Um, There's a lot that GDP does not measure. And so it's been really cool to learn about all of it. Yeah. And uh, because going off of just with GDP and, you know, something I found really interesting, and I was learning this from my uh, economics class from last semester, is there's actually four elements for GDP. There's net exports, there's government purchases, there's investment, and then there's consumer consumption. And, you know, that all kind of forms together to form GDP. But the interesting thing is, is it's not holistic because there's shortfalls. For instance, one of those shortfalls is there's just some things that aren't just measured in the economy. Unfortunately, cleaning your car is not measured in the economy because technically, even though you're performing a service, you're not paying anyone for it. You're doing it yourself. And then, you know, there's other off-market things that, you know, uh, kind of go under the radar of the government that makes money, but, you know, doesn't pay taxes. For instance, the drug trade would probably be one thing. Oh, you know, yes. That they're paying taxes on that. <laughs> well, just going off of what you said, something that I didn't think about or realize until a few discussions in class, but women have traditionally been like the sole household keepers, like cleaning, taking care of kids and running a household and now there's like so many firms and so many avenues to outsource that labor and like all of those are like finished goods and services that are calculated into the GDP you know like 20 years ago when most most of the men were working the women were staying at home that's one of the reasons I think GDP has grown significantly because there's a lot of stuff like that that wasn't originally included Something about the GDP that has become more reflected over time is women in the workforce. You know, like you said, 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago, that wasn't as common as a thing. You know, we can go into other elements of why it could have been viable just to have one breadwinner, essentially, but now it's not as easy for that to happen. Now it's definitely become much more common to see that especially with both sexes in the workforce. And that's just something that's very interesting. And I just, I mean, it's great. Um, It's one of those things that uh, have definitely progressed over time to become more commonplace, but women are just as much an essential part of the GDP as men are. So, yeah. Absolutely. Especially just going off the realm of economics. One of the things, going back to what you said about the psychology of it is, the thing about economics is, it's really just a system of thought. Oftentimes, there's this way of thinking that economics is only associated with the economy, and that's just not true. It's really associated with a lot of the things that you do just in life in general. I mean, for instance, one of the things that you can see in economics is the opportunity cost principle. What's more important to do with your time now compared to later, or what you should you do with your time compared to something else? I mean, should you watch Netflix for an hour and study for an hour, or don't watch Netflix at all, or don't study at all, like what's more important to you, Uh, what's the opportunity cost of doing that for you, is it greater for you to watch Netflix, in other words, do you get more benefit from watching Netflix, or do you get less benefit from watching Netflix because studying is more important to you, so there's just so many interesting things about economics that I just... I just really found interesting in that first class. Yeah, absolutely. And even even going to college is an opportunity cost because we're both in college and we could be working, but we're not. And we're going to college with the expectation that we're going to make more at the end of our education. So our opportunity cost is a really important thing, I think, to look at like in your individual life and for companies and yeah. That is completely true. Going back to the thing with economics, I can tell that uh, this is something that's very interesting to you. Would that had to play into why you chose economics as a minor? Yes and no. So I was on the pre-business track and um, you have to take the very introductory courses to accounting, economics, finance, marketing, like all the fields of business. 
And so that's why I ended up taking it because I thought I was going to major in business. It's a story for another day of why I ended up going pre-med. But I there's a way to get an economics degree through the business school, and then there's a way to get an economics degree through the liberal arts college. And so that's what I'm doing, basically. And so it just worked out with my science classes and my economics classes. So that's that's kind of how I got roped into it. And my first class was really challenging, but it was really rewarding and interesting. And so I think that's kind of why I stuck with it. A second ago, you mentioned accounting. How was accounting for you? I did not end up taking accounting. I've heard it's yeah. really hard, though. <laughs> I'm taking an accounting course right now. And I'll be honest with you, I don't think I've ever had a class that's tried my patience this much. <laughs> and the thing is, it's not that math is hard, it's just so repetitive and mm -hmm. dealing with balance sheets and cash flow statements and I know. it's I so frustrating it. because the worst part is it's just like it's not just you have to do it, but the way your instructor just gives you so much mounting stuff to do with it. It's like takes you thirty minutes a problem just to make sure you got all the numbers right and it's Yeah. Oh my goodness. <laughs> my dad's an accountant and he has been for the past like thirty years. And when he was in college, they did not have it have computers just near laptops. So I can't wrap my mind around how that worked. I can only imagine it was harder <laughs> without the computer and all the tools we have to today. But yeah, I don't think I could do it. As part of the business administration path, you basically have to take a few courses and then you have a lot of leeway for the kind of the electives for the minor that you can take. And I was looking on the sheet and it said you could take a second accounting class and like right now I'm approaching week four starting Monday. And I'm like, you know what? Uh, I don't think accounting is going to happen uh, in the fall <laughs> semester just because this is rough. Um. <laughs> that is, that's okay. <laughs> and you know it's not even that i'm bad with numbers it's just i feel like i just get so frustrated with this job and you know one of the principles of economics is like specialization makes the economy more efficient so you can just outsource that and let someone who loves numbers and loves accounting take care of that and you you do what you want to do <laughs> and we'll all be more efficient and happier yeah, but I think I have a person in mind for that. Um, I remember last year I worked with someone on student government and she was the SGA treasurer. I don't know if you know who Anna Hill is. Uh, she should be a senior this year, but um, I remember she absolutely loved the, the numbers thing. And, you know, she obviously had the accounting game on lock and, you know, all the power to her. I might just be calling her up one of these days and just ask her for some accounting help. Who knows? But, you know, I don't, I don't think I could do that. Maybe in another life, but, you know. <laughs> We will be right back. Hello, everybody. I hope you have enjoyed the show thus far. In the bio, you will notice that I have posted two links. One is a link to my local guide profile. I am a freelance reviewer for Google. My 60 plus reviews and my over 500 photos have been seen by over 3.5 million people. I even have a couple followers now. I have done reviews on sporting venues, restaurants, theme parks, airports, and more across several states. The other is a link to a blog I started last year. The blog is entitled Going Places, Eating Things, and it is something I definitely look forward to developing even more. Be sure to subscribe to email notifications on the website to know when I make my latest post. Links to that and more from my end are included below. This podcast is now on YouTube this season after all. I hope you would consider subscribing to me on YouTube in whatever podcast platform you utilize. Now let's return to our conversation with Mei Lin. I guess we can go into the stereotypical angle of economics, of course, and we can just go into the economy. Now, we're going to kind of keep it just over some general themes, you know, stuff that we can see happening now and, you know, in the news and things of that nature. So one of the things that is was kind of big this week, it might not be big by the time this episode airs, it'll probably just be kind of a blimp in the past, is really what happened with GameStop. And you saw probably how things happened, you know, when, you know, hedge funds kind of bet against the overall success of GameStop and essentially what happened was well it backfired because people ended up really going into GameStop and their stock price rose and it, the hedge funds lost billions and it, it was one of those things that you definitely don't see often 
especially considering the details of how certain companies, uh, particularly Robinhood, basically cut off the sales of some buying into GameStop because they kind of wanted, or at least it seemed like they wanted to kind of stop the losses of the hedge funds. And, you know, that was something really interesting that I found that, you know, I haven't seen anything quite like before. I mean, what do you think about it? To be honest, don't know a whole bunch about that. I did see that on Twitter, I think. Um, but yeah, that, I don't really know that much about that, to be completely honest. <laughs> hey, hey, don't worry about it. it. You're completely good. It's, it's completely fine. Don't worry about it. I guess one of the things that I felt like was just so predictable about that situation is you saw how a stock that was essentially worthless kind of just skyrocket. And then one of the things that you saw people do was like, man, I should buy GameStop stock, you know? And it's just like... There's so many reasons why that's a bad idea, especially for stocks that just surge all of a sudden. And mm -hmm. that's one of the things that is really just people just need to understand about the stock market, because when you invest in stocks, especially for individual stocks, this is even going to index funds, things of that nature. What's best to do is if you choose an individual stock to invest in, you have to do it based off of good market research and not what's happening this week. And as we saw, the GameStop stock started to go down. It was really volatile, and I'm sure it'll kind of go back to reality within the next couple of days, maybe even weeks, if it takes that long. What do you think about, you know, just overall trends of the stock market? And you see people just like just buying stocks all of a sudden, even though it's just the trends just dictate you to do that, but it's just not based in reality. What did you think of situations like that? I definitely agree with what you said. Like, do your research and don't make rash decisions. Don't make decisions based on feelings because, you know, they're, they be gone here one day and gone the next. Um, I do think it's really interesting what people are investing in now. You know, like a lot of people are trying to invest in companies making the COVID vaccine and hand sanitizer. And so, I, I mean, I think it makes sense because people are responding to what's going on in the world they're responding to the demands that they foresee coming and they're responding to shortages of supply of, of just things that they need i think it makes sense but i i agree with what you said not making rash decisions is the way to go and i i think that my dad is really good with um, investments and things of that nature. And so I think he, he really does manage most of um, my investments. And he, I don't remember, he, um, which specific stock it was, but I was, we were talking about it and then we went back and forth and he ended up not buying or investing for me. And it ended up being a really good decision because um, he was just going to wait a little bit longer and see what, what the trends were. And so and that goes back to what you're saying. Um, really doing your research is good and um, not making just spur of the moment decisions. Yeah, that is uh, very true. And uh, I guess kind of in lieu of that as well, do you see anything in the market now that seems promising or you feel like anything has just been a good bet coming off of last year? Anything come to mind for you? Not off the top of my head. I don't, I don't think so. Hey, hey, that's fine. Um, I would say that something I've noticed that I found just really interesting, especially coming off of the off of last year and even this year, is Bitcoin. Um, mm -hmm. It was something that definitely seemed as if it was going to be like this. Oh, only criminals invest in Bitcoin or use Bitcoin. But as we've seen, there's been more major platforms that have started to use it. There's definitely even some companies that have started to invest in it. And as we've seen, especially within the last two months, Bitcoin, last time I checked, is approaching around $38,000, $39,000 in like a month, month and a half ago, it was in the 20s. And so that's basically mm -hmm. doubled in value, essentially, in the span of a few months. And if companies like MicroStrategy Incorporated, you know, who put about a third of its uh, investment of its overall value of its company into Bitcoin, well, it really profited from that. Late November, early December, you saw the stock price around $211. And now it's surging upwards of $700, $800 now just because, you know what, since Bitcoin's been doing really good, 
that company is now just doing really good. And I don't know what it will be by the time uh, this episode is posted, but based off of how Bitcoin's been doing, I bet it's, it's going to keep going up. I was reading a article a few months back and it said within a year, Bitcoin should be going up to around $60,000 a share. It seems astronomical, but at the rate it's going, it wouldn't be surprising. It's a little bit off topic, but I saw on the news this guy had like $140,000 worth of Bitcoin, but he couldn't remember his password to get in to access it. <laughs> and um, I mean, that was that was the story. That was a really sad story, but it was just like he can't remember his password. So in the story, <laughs> which that wow. is a little bit concerning, you know. <laughs> yeah, I bet he didn't secure the Bitcoin through fidelity. Um, so, <laughs> yeah. Probably. Yeah, I, I can I can understand that. That would be extremely frustrating. But yeah, I guess an, another thing too as well is, would you say, are there any companies that you've kind of just been looking at that you feel like have been interesting, especially before well this year, things of that nature? Anything stands out to you? I think Amazon is a pretty cool company. I've watched a couple documentaries about their distribution process and there's a lot of steps in the journey from where it like goes from a warehouse to your house that they're not willing to disclose because um, it, it's just it's crazy efficient how they're able to get goods from one place to your house in sometimes less than 24 hours like that is crazy but they have the two-day guaranteed shipping and that is also really crazy um, but then I, they're expanding into pharmacy, like they're going to start delivering medicines and they, I mean, they already do food and they do electronics. They have their brands of like toothpaste and shampoos and it's just, I would say Amazon. I don't know that I'd ever want to work at Amazon, but I still am just constantly marveling at how expansive their company has become. Even though Jeff Bezos is like, you know what, there could be a day where Amazon isn't, you know, the hot stuff anymore. Um, definitely Amazon is one of those companies that look really promising. You know, it's kind of absurd how a company that started off by selling books now is you can buy batteries from. And the batteries are actually pretty good. <laughs> oh, yeah. It is. You probably also saw about how he uh, stepped down as CEO, but, you know, he's going to obviously be very ingrained into the company for the foreseeable future. He also owns the Washington Post. I heard he even has his own, uh, I guess, spaceship thing going on as well on the side. So he definitely has some stuff to keep busy with, but, you know, he still has a very big stake in the company. There's probably, probably a lot he doesn't have. Another company that I really like is Tesla. I think yeah. that's pretty cool. I don't know. When do you think that electric cars will be the norm? Well, it's going to happen, I believe, sooner than we realize. I was looking at an NPR piece really about a week ago, and they were saying for GM, they pledged to only produce electric vehicles, you know, like, you know, the mainstream stuff like cars, light duty trucks, things of that nature. They're only going to produce that starting in 2035. And, you know, as you can see, they're starting to roll in more vehicles that are of the, the electric variety. For instance, their new Hummer that's going to come out in the 2022 model year that's all electric. It's not going to be the gas guzzler that I feel like most people are accustomed to. But, you know, 2035 is only 14 years away. And that's not to say that every automaker will have that pledge in 2035, but it puts a pretty big standard on the industry because I think GM knows that gas isn't the future and there's all these other companies even besides tesla you know rivian among others who are also just trying to say you know what we understand that electric is the future and we're going to really invest into that and i think a lot of other companies are just also realizing that as well you know ford came out with their the Mustang Mach-E, which is also going to be released either in 2021 or 2022. It's basically an all-electric four-door Mustang. It's pretty crazy. I don't think anyone would have ever envisioned the Mustang becoming a four-door or even electric car because it's so different from what its humble beginnings in 1964 were. But ultimately, I feel like they're not the only car company that realizes that, hey, electricity is the future. It's not just exclusive to GM and Tesla. I think it's going to be widespread across the industry very soon in the future. Yeah, I'd actually did not know about GM's pledge to only produce electric cars. That's pretty cool. I think it would be good if we can get everybody on board and then we'd have to replace all the gas stations, I guess, with charging stations. 
So I guess we got a lot of infrastructure to change before that happens, but the future is pretty exciting in that regard, I'd say. Yeah, it really is. And uh, I don't know if you know this, but I'm an absolute car nerd, so I could really yeah. talk about this all day. Another fuel source that's kind of been interesting, but, you know, at this time, the infrastructure is even less than electricity is actually hydrogen. You know, there's also hydrogen fuel cell cars. You know, Toyota has the Toyota Mirai. I forgot the name of Honda's fuel cell car. It's only sold in certain areas of the United States, most notably California. And basically, they have these hydrogen fuel cell stations. And basically what happens is the way you fuel it up. You basically, this interesting pump you attach to your car and then it fills up this tank that expands and basically it's a certain like amount of kilograms of pressure that's supposed to go into the tank. But the thing about hydrogen is even though the framework isn't as widespread even as electricity, it can also be seen as the future because the byproduct of hydrogen is water, not toxic fumes and things of that nature. But you know, that'll be also very interesting to see. This will be the last thing I say about cars and I guess we can go back to economics. I'm sorry, just <laughs> no, you're good. I thought that's very interesting. And something else I found really interesting as well was with cars, one of the byproducts that people don't often realize about cars is actually just brake and particle dust as well as, you know, stuff that comes from your tires that also can create these microparticles of pollution that can also negatively affect the environment. This isn't to say that, you know, hey, we need to stop working on electricity, electric cars, because this has produced way more pollution. I feel like both things can also be addressed, but I feel like hopefully within the future, we also can realize that the stuff that we do with brakes, because, you know, that brake dust that, you know, especially you can see on cars. If you ever look at the front wheels of most cars, you notice that they look slightly darker than the rear wheels just because the way cars brake, there's more pressure in the front brake pads, emits more dust things of that nature and that dust doesn't just get on your wheels it can also get in the surrounding environment and also cause pollution in and of itself so hopefully in the future we can see some remedies to better address that and we don't just see it on uh supercars and sports cars that address it and those brake calipers cost thousands of dollars you know hopefully we can see it on mainstream cars one day yeah for sure would you say that also in the realm of economics you notice anything that's particularly interesting especially as it relates to I guess the American economy, um, as you probably know, something that's been really uh, speculated on, especially within the fiscal side of government, is the $1.9 trillion relief plan. And, you know, there's a lot of different elements to that bill that has seen some controversy. There's some things that are seen as good, things that are seen as bad. A lot of it is said to help with the economy. Some things could be seen by others as detrimental to economic growth, especially in the time where from January there was like 46,000 jobs created. What do you think of the $1.9 trillion economic plan? Do you think it helps with the economy? Do you think it hurts it overall? And do you think there needs to be anything that's addressed that isn't? Ooh, that's a, that's a loaded question. <laughs> <laughs> um, where should I start? So I'll say one thing. I learned to, or this past week that that 1.4 trillion, is that what it was? 1.4? I, I believe it was 1.9 trillion. Oh, 1.9 yeah. trillion. That was not counted in GDP as government spending. It was counted as like a transfer of payments. So it's not going to get counted in GDP until like we, our citizens spend it. I thought that was interesting. I don't know if that's commonly known knowledge or not, but that's something I learned. And then secondly, when you go onto the Federal Reserve website and you see the GDP listed for the, the different quarters, there is a huge dip in GDP um, in quarter two of 2020. But then like now or the past quarter that we just came out of, it's like right up near where we were pre-COVID, I guess. I mean, I wouldn't have thought it would be, we would have been right back to where we were before COVID. And the recession was, the 2008 recession is worse than, than the COVID economy. When you compare the data, that's what it says. So I find that really interesting. With the spending, I don't know exactly if people have spent it like already, if that makes sense. So I don't, I don't see how that could be counted in the GDP. And the GDP is already back up to where it was. So I don't know that that $1.9 trillion that the government, the stimulus package, I don't know that that actually was a part of boosting the GDP. Does that make sense? Yeah, I understand what, I understand what you're saying. You think it could potentially be a way to help with individuals who say, 
are having some issues with, you know, attaining a job or, you know, having funds come in because they have to devote it to other things like childcare or things of that nature. I still have questions myself of why GDP is right back up where it was. Not exactly where it was pre-COVID, but it's still very, very high. There's always going to be unemployment in the economy. Like, we're never going to reach reach a time when there's zero unemployment. Yeah. So with everything being shut down, I think it's closed a lot of fields, but I think it's opened a lot of fields also. I think that's really interesting. I think also it's kind of hard to tell now what the results of all of this, what the impacts of the plan is going to be because data is still coming in and this is kind of unrelated, but um, World War II, there's a lot of research. I mean, they calculated GDP and they thought World War II was what got us out of the kind of depression or recession that they were in, but there's a lot of things that were miscounted. Economists looking back are like, it wasn't as bad as it was. I really think it'll be at least maybe 10, 15 years before we really know the effects of the package and, and everything else surrounding it. I have two points on what you just said, but I'll go back to what you were saying about uh, your questioning of why GDP was almost back to pre-pandemic levels. I'll give you a great personal example from my own life. Even though right now I'm not going to the movie theaters or spending extraneous money on video games or buying books, you know, or by even buying clothes, I'm not even doing that. I have this just insatiable urge right now to just invest my money in just just food essentially and i have an apartment at the time right now and i'm thinking you know what i'm trying to bulk up you know get more muscular get more lean foods in my life so you know i buy sam's club the three pound bag of almonds the three pound bag of walnuts i just did that you know the almond milk the protein powder the you know all these other things it's like you know what i'm not spending it on other stuff and you know what ends up happening is like wow i'm spending way more than I usually would on food. So I think ultimately with part of the reason why you see that is the shift in what people are buying. And you know, obviously you can't really go into the entertainment sector as much as you used to be able to, especially with say for instance, watching movies or going to concerts. But I feel like people have a tendency to also diverge those funds to the other things. That's why we saw with, you know, Disney Plus and HBO Max, people started to buy into that. People bought the movies, people binged on stuff, people bought PlayStations, even though they were selling on StockX and eBay for $1,500, $2,000. People are, even though they can't spend it in a diverse array of things like they used to be able to, if there's a will, they'll find a way to spend their money. So I feel like, in a way, that's part of the reason why spending is still up in that regard. And then, of course, I don't know how much you can relate this to just the overall percentage of things. I mean, people also have to spend money on Macs. People still have to spend money on cleaning solutions, things of that nature. And I'll be honest with you, too, that's also very expensive, especially if you buy repeatedly, especially if you like to clean things repeatedly. And, you know, I guess, like you said, it'll take time to realize how much that actually came out of our wallets in terms of how our overall spending. But I feel like that's also a very... Uh, big factor as well to look at. Well, I agree with what you said. And um, people, I've noticed, do a lot of home improvement projects, and that is pretty expensive. And we have a friend who works at a car and motorcycle dealership, and he said that in the early stages of quarantine or when everything was shut down, he sold more motorcycles than he had in his entire career. Like, and... I mean, that's just, conf I mean, if, if unemployment rates are what they are, it's confusing to me why people are like spending more when they probably should be spending less. But that's where I get confused of like why, you know, numbers are where they are and then unemployment percentages are where they are. It's just in my mind, I, I'm not exactly sure, you know, where it meets, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. And that's something interesting I found out about economics. Like one of the hardest things I had to learn from last semester when I took my economics class was just like the way that you think about stuff in terms of how you would spend your money and how you would spend your time into certain things isn't the way that most people would do it. I'm thinking, hey, if I'm unemployed, why would I spend more money on stuff that I can fill my time with? I'd be searching for a job. I would right, be you know, yeah. out doing these certain things. But as my economics teacher did her absolute best of explaining to me, she said, Garrett, you're not the economy. That's not how everyone else thinks. You have to look at econ economics 
from the viewpoint of what do people in mass do when they have extra time? What do people in mass do when they're unemployed? Mm-hmm. What do people in mass do when they have an extra twelve hundred dollars? And yeah. that's why, you know, especially for the twelve hundred dollar stimulus checks that happened last year, you would think that if you needed the checks that, you know what, I'm gonna save this money, but as we saw that was invested right back into the economy. People use those checks to buy stuff. So I feel like that's just something that I just kind of had to come to terms with. And I feel like that really explains a lot, too. I mean, yeah, I've heard the average credit card debt is like $15,000. And I mean, there's so many statistics, I guess, that point to what you're saying. People are not always like super wise with their money. <laughs> so. And it's like, it's not just relegated to this profession. Obviously, with that credit card debt, you, you probably think is, how would you let yourself spend $15,000 of money that you do not have, knowing that credit card debt, the interest rates are horrible. It's, it's one of the first debts you really have to pay off if you have a lot of. Mm-hmm. But I guess you can go into other professions as well, say, like for doctors, it's like, how do you still eat the same horrible diet, even though you know it is causing all of your health problems? And... Why do you still refuse to exercise at least five times a week when you know that's one of the most helpful ways you can do to lower your high blood pressure, your cholesterol, things of that nature? I feel like there's just an air of objectivity that I feel like people within their respective profession have about certain things. And, you know, it even relates to my major with journalism, too. I can even give you an example with journalism. It's just really funny to see how the way you think that this is how it should be done, and this is the way that everyone else does it. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> and I guess also going off of your second point about how with World War II, like, that got us out of the Great Depression. That's another thing about economics. Uh, another example of that is the Great Moderation in the period of the 80s up until, you know, the mid to late 2000s. Some economics, some economists, <laughs> I'm sorry, no, some good. economists think that the Great Moderation ended with the Great Recession. Others believe that it continued past the Great Recession, and that was just a hiccup on the trail. Now, I don't know what people think about now. Maybe it's officially ended now. I don't know. But that's just another element of economics that, you know, there's a lot of just up-in-the-air things for debate just within people within the profession because there's so many things like, you know, hey, end here. No, it started there. It's just there's so much things that people just can really deliberate on. And I feel like, especially with what you said, that'll definitely be something that economists will definitely be delving into for a very, very long time. Oh, yeah. I'm sure that our kids will be learning about this when they're in school. And it'll be one of the things that we can tell them we lived through this. Um, And then also, going off of what you just said, I think there's always in the field of economics, there's always going to be like some error in some way, because it's impossible to you produce something like like an iPhone, what would an iPhone be worth, you know, a hundred years ago? Well, it didn't exist. And so, you know, when you're trying to assign value to different objects and different services that are sold today, like you can't, you know, equate that to something 50 years ago. So I think there's always going to be debates about what really happened and what were the numbers actually. Yeah. And with that iPhone example, I feel like that's perfect. That's a perfect example of the networking effect. Well, 50 years ago, I mean, you would have been able to take probably really good photos and even video, but you wouldn't be able to make calls with anyone. You probably wouldn't be able to put those videos on a platform since everything was still using tape. I mean, basically with the networking effect, the value of an object is based on the availability of, you know, other people who use that same object. So, if you have an iPhone, which is probably was probably more powerful than the, the space shuttle that initially went to the moon, well, I mean, you have a powerful device, but it's essentially worthless because you can't use it for the intended purpose of, you know, what it was supposed to be used for. Because a lot of the capability of whether it be an iPhone or a Samsung, it's based on connectivity with other devices like it. So that's a good point. That's so true. We will be right back. Hello everybody, I hope you have enjoyed the show thus far. In the bio, you will notice that I have posted two links. One is a link to my local guide profile. I am a freelance reviewer for Google. My 60 plus reviews and my over 500 photos have been seen by over 3.5 million people. I even have a couple followers now. I have done reviews on sporting venues, restaurants, theme parks, airports, and more across several states. 
The other is a link to a blog I started last year. The blog is entitled Going Places, Eating Things, and it is something I definitely look forward to developing even more. Be sure to subscribe to email notifications on the website to know when I make my latest post. Links to that and more from my end are included below. This podcast is now on YouTube this season after all. I hope you would consider subscribing to me on YouTube in whatever podcast platform you utilize. Now let's return to our conversation with Mei Lin. Within the realm of economics, has there been a favorite moment in any of your classes, a favorite class in particular, favorite professor, all three? Hmm. I've only had two different professors. I have um, the same professor that I had the first class. Um, I definitely like macro more than microeconomics. I like the big picture study of it. So that was interesting. Game theory is something we did in microeconomics. I don't know if it's if I can explain it because it's a very visual kind of thing, but if you have a second and you want to look up game theory, theory it's very interesting and it's a tool that economic economists use to predict um, how people will respond and they can pretty much guess what people are going to do in certain scenarios, um, whether that's with um, airplane tickets because airplane tickets used to be like super, super, super expensive and they still kind of are, but that price was super inflated. And then regulations were put in place and the price came back down. You can use game theory to predict how many people are going to buy tickets. And so I thought that was very interesting. So I like game theory. Um, I also just love learning about just random facts about um, companies. I don't know if you knew this, but Netflix, they had the business model for the Roku stick. Do you know what the Roku stick is? Yeah. Um... I was not familiar until like until we got one. I just didn't know that they existed. <laughs> but anyways, Netflix was about to produce the Roku stick and they had everything lined up to start this business. And then the day before it was supposed to launch, the CEO or whoever in Netflix's company makes that decision, pulled the plug and was like, no, we're not doing it. They did not end up making the Roku stick and Roku ended up coming and taking that like business idea and turning it into Roku, but I thought it was very interesting, just learning random random facts like that. Yeah, and uh, that is very interesting, you know, with Roku, that's become very popular. Uh, I actually have a uh, Roku TV, though it's really my brother's TV, we just put his big 40-inch TV in the living room. I prefer the Amazon Fire Stick, but, you know, Roku's still good, you know, things of that nature. Um, I would say an interesting fact that I learned from my uh, economics class was actually about Alan Greenspan, who was a uh, former Fed chair. And essentially what the book was saying was he's currently married to an NBC reporter and, you know, a correspondent. Uh, Her name is Andrea Mitchell. And what the book was explaining was when uh, Alan Greenspan initially proposed to her, he was using this talk known as Fed speak. And Fed speak is really just this vague language used by the Fed to make sure that they say as little as possible, as much as possible, so they don't try to influence the markets based off of, you know, saying, you know, it's looking really promising or, you know, it's not looking too good because that can have a direct effect on the markets. So the Fed speak is kind of just a neutral way of talking. And essentially what the book was saying was he used Fed speak when he initially proposed to her (laughs) and like, she didn't understand what he was saying, and that's why he she rejected him the first time. Because... That's so funny. <laughs> I'll have to read that. That's so funny. Yeah, I found that hilarious, too, and I was like, your your language is so vague. You flub a marriage proposal because of that. But from what I can tell, they're, they're happily married now, so, you know. Well, that's, that's good. Glad it worked out for him. <laughs> I read a book last semester called Freakonomics. Uh, it's, it was published in, like, 2010 or 2011. And that book was just full of very odd correlations. I didn't necessarily agree with everything in that book, but it definitely, definitely made me, made me think. 
that's really the thing about uh, economics, especially with uh, different ways of thought. It's going to be impossible to agree with everything, especially with uh, what people say. As great as, you know, John Green is, there's going to come a time where you don't agree with what he says about economics, even though, you know, he tells that, you know, he was the person who knows what he's talking about economics. He got an award back in high school. He's brilliant. I'm not trying to take away anything away from him. I'm just trying to say that you're not going to agree with every point he right, makes. Right, right. And I guess at the same time, that's just endemic of all fields. There's going to always be something that you don't necessarily agree with, but that doesn't make you any more stupid or them any less intelligent. It's just that there's just a disagreement, so. Mm-hmm. For sure. I want to delve into a topic that you wanted to talk about today or you're interested in. It can be a topic we've already talked about, like economics or Alan Greenspan, or it can be about something that you're more interested in. Does anything else come to mind? Oh, goodness. You put me on the spot. Um, <laughs> I feel like we've... I, I really enjoy this. I've learned quite a bit about you. I'm going to go look up that stuff about the Bitcoin and the game gaming oh. stock. GameStop. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> I do not know about that. Let me think. Uh, hmm. I don't know. I have a good thing I want to ask you, I guess, related to economics. Upon graduation, May 2023, how do you want to use your minor in economics to help you with your major in pre-med? How do you think those two things will mesh together in the future? That's a really good one. I actually don't know why this didn't come to me. So right now I'm reading the book, a book called Where Does It Hurt? It's by Jonathan Bush, and um, his uncle is George W. Bush, I think. But anyways, he took a very different, like, approach, like, because all of his family's, like, in politics, and he did not go to college, I don't think, initially, and he became a medic in the military, he did that for a while, and then he came back, he was not very good at school, he said that he didn't feel like he was book smart necessarily, and then just probably because of the connections he had with his uncle being the president, um, he ended up going to Harvard Business School. But anyways, this is a very roundabout way, but the book is about why healthcare in America is so expensive. And he started a business model or business. I think I'm not very far into it, but he is trying to cut down costs of just so many things in the medical field. Cause he, he's like, I, I know how to do this. Like you don't have to have a medical degree to do this. And he's like, in the military, they train medics to do tracheotomies and very textbook procedures like that. And like, obviously you don't want just anyone, you know, doing these procedures, but he said there's quite a few, he realized there's quite a few of these procedures we can train people to do when he actually got deployed a few times. He's like, when you're halfway across the world, like you don't really have a choice, I guess. Right. I hope to use my economics knowledge, I guess. Um, maybe in that way of just looking for ways to cut costs where I can, where it's where I'm, it's wise to, and then also, you know, bringing the best care to my future patients for the least amount of cost to them. I guess that's how I would answer that. Yeah, that's that's very great to hear. And, you know, um, especially with so many elements of healthcare, uh, one of the obvious examples I always think about, especially as a type 1 diabetic, is mm-hmm. you see people from, you know, Detroit, Michigan, among other cities, having to go across the border to Canada just to get insulin. Mm-hmm. Oh, you, yeah. You almost have to wonder, like, first of all, why is insulin this expensive? Because a month's supply of insulin, like four vials without insurance, that would cost around $1,200. So, I mean, you have to wonder why it's so expensive. And then the other thing you also have to think about is how come there isn't another version of this out on the market to help drive down costs that could be just as effective, just as, you know, noteworthy and also much, much cheaper. Mm-hmm. There could be a variety of entities that could do that, maybe another private organization, maybe even the government. You know, it makes you wonder like, there's so many different things we could really do with mm-hmm. healthcare, especially on the side of just cost. Addressing that would be very important. And also on the topic of diabetes, 
Uh, one third of all Medicaid dollars actually go to the care and treatment of diabetes. It's typically not type one because type one is actually quite rare compared to type two. But with, with type two diabetes is one of those things that can be very, very expensive to maintain and take care of, not just with the medications, but also having to buy strips and meters, you put the strip in and then you prick your finger, the, the blood that comes from your finger, you put that on the strip, the meter reads it and gives you a blood sugar reading, things of that nature. Then you also have to buy stuff like snacks to make sure that if your blood sugar goes low, you see you have something to eat. There's a lot of different elements to diabetes, but ultimately with that, you also have to wonder, not only should we just deal with the cure, should we also deal with prevention? Because from an economic standpoint, it would actually make more sense to put things in place to make sure that at least people who, you know, aren't already predisposed to it don't get diabetes in the first place, such as investing in resources to make sure that we have fruits and vegetables in certain areas or, you know, put taxes on certain foods to dissuade people from eating them, things of that nature. And you could weigh the economic cost of, you know, trying to do preventative measures to prevent the actual care of diabetes because that gets very, very expensive over time. So I guess that's an economic thing you could put in that perspective as well. Yeah, I mean, healthcare is really expensive in America compared to other countries. Yet America is probably one of the most unhealthy countries. You know, just different cancers and obesity. But at the same time, a lot of people come to America for our healthcare. But it, yeah. it just, it doesn't make sense. And where I am in the book, he's talking about how doctors, when you go as a patient, just because of how insurance is generally set up, you don't have a lot of choice of who you see. And we need to set it up to where, like, any other market, you know, if you don't like Dasani water, then you can get Deer Park. Or, I mean, that's just a random example. I but know what you mean. <laughs> you, can't, you can't shop around as well. And so then that makes doctors, which I know doctors do try hard, and but they don't necessarily have to please or satisfy their patients or customers like, you know, restaurants do because... I mean, they're not competing for you to come back because they know there's always going to be patients. And so it'd be patients would get better care if they had the ability to shop around, essentially. Yeah, that is very true. And the incentive to not shop around, especially with the current system, is because of out-of-network cost, and those can just mount up in thousands of dollars. So I, don't, I really don't have all the answers of how we can fix it, but maybe I can be a part of that at some point in my career. I think that is a very noble goal to achieve and just knowing you, I know you'll achieve it. So that's great. Well, thank you. Of course. Ladies and gentlemen, Maylin Dye, she's been an amazing guest to bring on the show. And listen, Maylin, thank you so much for talking with me today. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much for tuning in to the latest episode of the podcast. If you like what you listen to, I hope you would consider subscribing and even jumping over to YouTube to see our conversation in video format, albeit over Zoom. That is a new platform for the podcast this season, and I think will only serve to enhance the experience of the podcast. Though we do have some notable people returning to the show, I am also branching out to talk with some other associates of mine, as well as even completely new acquaintances. I'll even add a preview of what's to come for the next episode shortly. But even as new things are incorporated, some things will stay the same. This podcast will continuously seek to improve itself, and I will be just as receptive to my audience this season as I was last season. The audience this season will inevitably become larger, but you can also help with that. Share this podcast with people you know, and please look at the blog and local guide profile that I talked about earlier. As always, stay prosperous. Sponge, man, it's whatever happened to it? Is, it. is it done now? Is that is it it or what? The thing is, no, what? like, I would say to the sponge. Are you talking about for me or just the trend overall? <laughs> no, just the. Just... <laughs> I think the trend for the sponge is over. <laughs> I would say yes, for me. For me. <laughs> I think I think it ended for you maybe what two years ago, perhaps. 
Well, I would say that I still use it, but it's way toned down. It's not yeah. near as bad as it used to be. <laughs> Man, they, I, I think D's on to something, though. I think it's trending all the way down right now. So, but yeah. it was hot for a minute, though, man. Kind of like those Popeye's chicken sandwiches. You know, it was a real quick. <laughs> yeah. 